Welcome to This Human Life with a Philosophical Coach. I'm thrilled to have you tuning in. I'm your host, Sam Kukathis, aka The Philosophical Coach, philosopher, human expert, and high-performance coach. This podcast at its core is about navigating the complexities of being human, whilst providing you the opportunity to go beyond any conception of who you think you are, really. Inside of the freedom that comes from not being attached to figuring out your true purpose, or who you are, is an opening for creating a life free from constraint. If that intrigues or excites you, then you're definitely in the right place. The ideas are drawn from neuroscience, philosophy, my coaching practice, working with elite leaders, and experience. You can expect candor, humor, vulnerability, and ideas which are unfamiliar to you, and some you may just plain disagree with. You'll also get the opportunity to hear from inspiring coaches and leaders. Now let's get ready to question what we know. Welcome back to This Human Life. So today, we're going to be looking at this question. Are you someone who find yourself consuming all this knowledge and not implementing it? If you are, you're going to want to listen closely to this episode and particularly to my next guest. So today, I'm really excited to bring on my cousin, Melanie Davidas. And Melanie is a mindset and confidence coach for editors and academics, and she also has a podcast called Edit Boost. And Melanie, thank you so much for coming on. It's so great to connect with you, and I'm really excited for this. No, thanks, Sam. I'm excited too. It's lovely to be here and um, have a chat. So I just want to start by, you know, giving people opportunity to, to know who, a little bit about who you are. So can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure, I can do that, and I'll try to not take up the whole episode just talking <laughs> myself, which I'm good at. Um, so basically, uh, I was an academic very briefly, so I did a PhD straight out of undergraduate, uh, probably because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my science degree, and um, I was given the opportunity to do a PhD. So I did that, went to Japan and did a postdoc, and then that really cemented for me that I was not cut out uh, to be an academic, and so I came back to Australia and really had no idea what to do next and then I kind of stumbled into the world of editing um, so I worked for a small agency where we did we edited government uh, reports written by scientists so it was really great for my background because I enjoyed uh, ironically when I was doing my PhD and postdoc I actually enjoyed the writing the most and most of my friends hated writing their thesis but I actually found it okay and um, so in this job we edited reports written by scientists or consultants uh, but we sort of made them into plain English while retaining the scientific merit of that. So that was a great job. Uh, but then I had my kids and I wanted more flexibility with my time. So in 2013, I set up my own freelance editing business and I focused on academics. So journal articles, uh, particular in the health, um, health, you know, biological sciences, health and medicine. Uh, but while I was doing that, I was also giving workshops for universities in writing and editing and helping graduate students in particular um, you know, get better habits with their writing and, and self-editing. Uh, and I decided to create an online course. So I thought, well, this would be great because I sort of accidentally fell into the world of online business around that, around 2015. Um, so I thought, great, I'll create an online course and people will buy it and that'll be, you know, a great source of income. And what I learned from that is that it's actually quite hard to sell things. <laughs> and, and also when I looked in online business communities I was in, I could see that there's lots of really talented people, but not all of them were successful with their business. And actually some of them seemed really confident and did great marketing and got lots of clients and others were equally talented, but didn't put themselves out there and 
didn't have enough, you know, weren't really earning enough money. And so I was quite fascinated by this, the differences between these people. And at the same time, I sort of discovered life coaching, which I'd never heard of, uh, but I became fascinated with that. And so a few years ago, I decided to become a life coach and I've sort of retired from editing and now work uh, with my two client groups. One is academics who are struggling to write and one is freelance editors who are struggling to um, find enough clients. I think that's, there's a lot of what you just shared there, which is very relatable. You know, that, that feeling of, I'm not sure that I fit in this world initially when it came to like the, the academic experience when you're in Japan. And then also the, what to do now, you know, given I've, you know, I've got all this experience, I've got all these qualifications, but what do I do now? And, you know, maybe what would be great to hear a little bit about is why did you ultimately decide to become a coach? I know you said you were fascinated with being a, being a life coach, but Lots of people get fascinated by life coaching and don't do anything about it. So why did you decide to become a coach? And what were some of the challenges that you had in, in setting up the business? I think the thing that appealed to me is I, well, one thing is I've always been someone that people have sort of come to when they've had a problem. And I know a lot of coaches are in this position too, um, where they've naturally been someone who seen who can help people and people confide in me, you know, have always confided in me with all sorts of problems over the years. And I really enjoy interacting with people. So one of the things when I was doing freelance editing, I really liked interacting with my authors more than actually doing the editing work in the end. So I like having, you know, relationships with clients and and talking with them. So I think that part of it appealed to me. But just, I, I guess what I love about it is just seeing, you know, you can see potential in other people much more easily than they can see it in themselves and watching the transformation that happens with clients when they go from, you know, having no confidence or doubting themselves to suddenly doing all the things they said they wanted to do and having great success. It's just a really great feeling to see um, someone blossom like that uh, over a period after working with a coach. And so I think that's the thing that I most enjoyed. And I could see, um, I guess I could just see the difference between people who had the right sort of mindset and had the confidence versus those who didn't. And I thought if I can help people do that, uh, that'd be great because then they go on to have success and they, they help other people in whatever they're doing. And um, so there's a ripple effect there. Uh, the challenges in making that leap to a new field were um, significant, I guess. I mean, it's 2021 now, it's probably been four or five years since I first had the inkling that maybe this is something I could do. Um, but I think the biggest thing to overcome was just seeing myself as a coach because I didn't see myself as a coach for a long time, even though I might've been studying coaching or even had some clients. Um, I think it's only when you see yourself as the thing that you want to be that you can really make great leaps and, and your business or whatever it is that you want to do, you know, really takes off, but it can be quite hard to get to that point. So what was the deciding factor for you if, if you can see it that allowed you to speak into being a coach hard to remember specifics I do remember when I decided to do a co- coaching certification you know take a program so that was a huge decision obviously and an investment um said so that and I'm someone who likes to collect uh qualifications so you know for me it's really important to have proper training and to feel that I know what I'm doing and I know see editing and coaching have a lot of similarities in that it's they're both completely unregulated professions so anyone can call themselves an editor anyone can call themselves a coach but for me it's really important to have some proper training so that was one thing that helped me feel more authentic in being a coach but um 
I think when I set up the first coaching work I was doing was really with editors and, you know, I really was committed and am committed to changing the profession as a whole because editors as a profession tend to be, uh, you know, mostly women, mostly uh, people who don't like charging too much or feel bad about asking for money, um, people who don't like marketing themselves. And so having been an editor since 2004, I know there's a lot of people who are amazing editors who are barely earning enough to live on. And I guess I was frustrated seeing that and I really want to change the profession and the way people see editors and the best way to do that is to do it from the inside. So we can't, you know, as editors, we, people don't understand what we do. Um, and so what I say to editors is you have to be confident in what you're doing and then that helps clients sort of see what you're doing. So I suppose I was motivated to help people. The other thing for me is, um, you know, women in their fifties in Australia, and I haven't verified this statistic, but um, I suppose what I've read are the fastest growing homeless population because there's a lot of women who get to middle age and suddenly find themselves with very little in retirement savings and if their partnership breaks up you know they have no uh, not enough income to live on and I guess you know it's really important for me that women are financially independent and so part of that is actually charging enough to your clients and earning a decent living and being able to support yourself so that also motivated me so I guess there was that and I wasn't really enjoying the editing work as much as I had been so there was a few factors that sort of push me to make the leap and um you know looking back on it it's hard to pinpoint a precise moment but probably a variety of things that led to me finally doing it totally I, I think I can relate to a lot of that I mean certainly until you start to produce results where you can see a transformation in someone it's hard to really speak into being a coach because you're kind of questioning whether or not you're good enough to to do this um that that was I think the real turning point for me was like oh I realized I'm actually really good at providing you know results for people which they didn't know were possible and when that happens and it's like maybe I can actually make a living from this maybe this could be a career you know and that's that's when the excitement uh happens for me I um actually started off so when I started doing coaching I didn't really understand what coaching was to be honest right um because so many people use the term in so many different ways but so when I first started I actually started offering business mentoring Mm. Uh, because that felt safe to me, right? That was giving, telling people what to do or giving them advice. Um, so even though I was sort of calling it business coaching, it was in hindsight, it was probably more mentoring and advising. But, and even as I was doing my coaching certification, you know, I had this real fear around this idea of, you know, the pure form of coaching is the client has all the answers and you're not there to tell them to do things. You're there to create a safe space and, you know, they will work out, um, you know, what they need to do or they know what they need to do they just need help in doing it um, and that felt scary to me because when you come from a background of wanting to just tell people how to do things or feeling that they're paying you for your knowledge um, it was really hard for me to make that transition to just you know telling people what to do to actually not telling them um, and so I think that's probably that was another point at which I had to let go of that advising and also trying to educate my potential clients as to what coaching is. Um, but yes, yeah, just the idea that I don't have to provide all the answers. Cause I think for a lot of new coaches, that's quite a challenge is it's like, well, what are we supposed to talk about? <laughs> we don't tell them what to do. And it's just, you know, really just getting those early clients and um, you know, the only way to get better at it is to do it. Um, and as part of my coaching certification, actually, we had a mentoring, uh, a mentor who listened to our calls and 
you know, we recorded calls with their clients permission and she gave us feedback on those. And that was also a huge turning point for me just to get some feedback from an expert coach that said, okay, this was great. You could have asked these questions. You could have taken in this direction. Um, and just hearing her feedback on other pet coaches calls as well. I think that for me gave me the confidence to think, oh yeah, maybe I can do this <laughs> so, yeah. so, because otherwise it's the same with editing. You know, you're, the clients are happy with what you're doing because you know, something's better than nothing, but you don't actually know if you're doing a good enough job unless you get feedback from someone who's an expert. And so that's where I think the value of doing proper training um, is really important because you actually get that feedback from yeah. an expert, not just from your clients. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the work that I got exposed to was all in the world of performance. So you were constantly getting evaluation on your performance on every little aspect of, of what you were doing. Um, and then through time, you just start to realize that oh, I can actually coach now. Uh, and then you would be working with people in different, you know, the leadership communities that I was um, practicing in and then helping them with whatever they were dealing with. And then I was like, oh, this is seemingly a lot easier than uh, I thought. So that kind of created a roll-on effect. But I, I want to kind of shift from um, coaching generally of how you became a coach to more specifically what you do around confidence. Um, and by looking at the question that we started with around the way in which it's so common in 2021 to be a consumer of knowledge and it's not always so common to implement it. So maybe that would be a, a point for you to, to come in on. Yeah, so I think both of my uh, client groups, academics and editors, both like reading, <laughs> both intelligent. Uh, you know, they it's easy for them to consume content. You know, they, they read all the time. So, and because of the internet and there's just infinite resources being published every five seconds uh, there's no shortage of things to read there's no shortage of books to buy courses to do but even blog posts podcasts to consume you know all of it uh, and so it's easy to feel like that's something productive you can say well I'm listening to this podcast I'm doing this course I'm reading this book to grow my business uh, and that's the easy part right just consuming that uh, and convincing ourselves that we're actually doing something that's useful <laughs> and it is useful but we have to actually implement something from that and so I think that's where a lot of people get stuck because they just get stuck in consumption mode and don't actually do anything with that information and you know it's like there's so many things where there's books coming out every day in marketing because people obviously struggle with marketing and I'm one of those people too but um, actually having to do something about that is confronting and scary and it's much safer to just read another book about it and so for my academic clients I used to you know I still do workshops on writing and editing but a lot of it these days my focus is really on confidence and just getting people to do something <laughs> so actually just do some writing and not just read you know blogs or whatever it is on how to write uh, not to overthink it and I think we're just also used to this idea that as content creators we think we just need to create more and more content but what I've started doing is really just not trying to create more content and just getting people to to do things and the focus I have is just helping them feel more confident by doing so for academics and writing it's just getting them to write and make it a regular practice and prioritize it and the act of doing it regularly means you feel better about it and you feel better about yourself and you feel more confident and then you're more likely to do it whereas what happens conversely is people you know, I, I work with a lot of academics who have put their journal article on hold for X months and then it's really hard to get back into it. And so when they sit down to get back into it, they don't really want to and it's easy to find something else to do. So we just put it off for another week. Um, 
and that just downward <laughs> downward spiral of confidence uh, just means it never gets finished. So it is really just about helping people feel more confident so they do it more. Um, I can uh, I can relate very intimately <laughs> in different, different ways with this, both in terms of my own experience of doing a PhD and also with working with PhD students who are like, you know, just, you know, come to me without any confidence uh, because the lack of, the, the amount of guidance is very, very, um, well, it's often very, very minimal uh, these days. And it's a kind of like a crapshoot as to whether or not you get someone who's really willing to support you through the journey. And the, the number of PhD students out there who are just questioning, why on earth did I decide to do this is, uh, is shocking. And you know, it's definitely something to be done about. And definitely, I think there's, uh, you could be a really uh, a pillar in, um, in making a difference to not just uh, academics who are established, but also PhD students who are really struggling just to find some direction, but also belief that they can do this and that they can um, move through to the next stage of their journey. Yeah, I think it's hard in the world of academia, you know, PhD students are at the bottom rung of the ladder pretty much when, you know, compared to academic staff. And so uh, it's easy to just lose your confidence in that setting but when you step out of the ivory tower into the real world you know actually you're doing pretty well if you're doing a PhD so you obviously um, know your stuff it's just that I think the other thing I see I think is just that people aren't trained in how to give feedback so as an editor part of their training as being an editor is giving feedback that is constructive as well as useful um, in a way that's compassionate and supportive and and I have given some workshops for PhD supervisors to help them learn how to give feedback on writing. That's all of those things. And, and not, not wanting their student to sound like them because what happens is a lot of people come, I've worked with a lot of people who finished their PhD and are working as postdocs and they've lost all their confidence around writing because of one person's, something one person said or, you know, three years of working with a supervisor who um, just made them feel that they were hopeless at writing when they're not. Um, and so it is one of, it's another one of those skills that no one really learns, but it's, um, you know, when you're a professional editor, you can't, I can't edit things to make it sound like I wrote it. I have to preserve the author's voice, um, look for things that can be improved, but also just keep the author feeling confident about their own writing and, you know, working together to make it a better publication. And I think somehow, um, you know, academics are under a lot of pressure. And so that might be part of it, but also a lot of them haven't received training in how to, give that writing support and feedback and so students are sort of left either with no support or um, worse than that you know negative support that erodes their confidence and then you know that can have long-reaching effects later into their career um, and sometimes it's just a matter of me editing something and saying this is fine and that's enough for them to just go oh, okay that's good someone thinks it's okay um, a lot of the people I work with actually just uh, who aren't necessarily students but are early career researchers for example uh, it's their academic journal articles that just sit on their computer unfinished because of the fear of submitting them or the fear of rejection. And so uh, sometimes they just need someone to look at it and say, it's fine, send it. Um, but there's a lot of unfinished papers sitting on computers. <laughs> so part of my job is to help these people just get things finished and, and move on to the next thing and just accept that rejection is part of it for all writers, you know, including fiction and any kind of writer has to accept that most things get rejected at some point before they get accepted and it's not a slight on anyone that's just the process yeah i think that's a, a lesson i was slow to learn <laughs> just to put it mildly like you know <laughs> there is no perfect there's just complete and then uh 
you know, you can, you have an opportunity to make it better when it's complete, but you have no opportunity to make it better if you're looking to get it perfect. <laughs> yeah, so that's something I work with, with people a lot is just this idea they can't let it go uh, because the problem is you can just fiddle with it forever. And, you know, usually for most people, you know, there's some kind of hard deadline for a thesis for a grant, but for journal articles, there isn't one. And so um, it's tempting to just keep fiddling with it and fiddling with it. And every time you look at it, you want to make another change. But um, yeah, as you say, it's never going to be published. And you can give the same paper to 10 people, they're all going to make different changes. So it's just never, it's never going to be perfect. It just has to be, as you said, good enough, <laughs> good enough to get accepted. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The, <laughs> the idea of uh, perfection is, I think, probably one of the number one things holding people back in, uh, in, in the academic world. It's this, and to realize you're never going to attain it. Like I remember lots of academics who would, they just published an article and they were already looking at the published version and going, I'm not happy with this. You know, they're already critical of what's already existed. Like you can't do anything about it now, but that's, that's the level that it's at that you're, and I, and I don't think it just applies to academics. Obviously it applies in all sorts of anywhere where you are a really high performer and you set yourself you know, incredibly high standards. Um, it's just be like, well, no, this is where it should be right now. This is where it should have been like that. You know, it's just this false narrative that we've created about what something should look like um, based on what our brain has, you know, decided to construct for us and we've taken it on as the truth. Yes, yes. And when people say that, you know, they want it to be perfect, usually I'll just push them to tell me what, how will they know when it's perfect? <clears throat> and if you ask someone that, they usually can't tell you because they don't know. There isn't, there isn't any way to know that because it can never be perfect. So, um, and I think that's normal for us to look at something we've written because often by the time something's published, it was written a year ago, right? So of course, by then, um, by the time it actually sees a light of day in a journal, for example, your writing skills have probably improved or, you know, you're looking at the topic, thinking about it in a different way. So I think... <clears throat> Uh, it's good if you can see things you can improve with it because it means you've you know, you've had some growth and learned new things. But yes, it's, a, it's a, the worst thing is when you find all the typos that you missed, <clears throat> especially as an editor, when you see something that's gone to print and then you see the <laughs> the glaring uh, typo that missed got missed in the proofreading. So, um, but I think that's another thing that you learn as an editor is just mistakes happen and you can't pick up everything. I think another thing which I see and certainly for myself was a problem and with others was just this idea that you tell yourself that you're working on it. Like, you know, I'm working on the thesis or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on my book or whatever it happens to be for you. That makes sense. And it's like, you know, I, I wonder whether or not that's something that you've seen with your experience of working with the academics and editors, this, this expression, I'm working on it. Yes, yeah, so this is a expression that's banned for my. <laughs> so I have a membership for academics, which is mostly PhD students, and it's a monthly membership. And we do two co-writing sessions a week. Uh, so using the Pomodoro technique, two 25-minute sprints, and people have to just say what their what their intent is for the session. So what are they going to achieve? You know, thinking of it in terms of smart goals, it's got to be measurable, right? So you, so for me, it's got to be: did I do it? Yes or no? You've got to be able to set a goal in a way that you can say. And if you say I'm working on it, well, that's too wishy-washy because you can always say yes to that, even if you've spent half an hour wrestling with a comma uh, and that's not really making progress. So, you know, members <laughs> learnt over the months to just say I'm going to write a paragraph, I'm going to edit a paragraph, I'm going to fix my references, I'm going to create a table, uh, but not to say I'm working on my paper because, you know, as you say, it's easy to just say that indefinitely. Like you can always find something to fiddle with and, um 
Yeah, that's that's the benefit of being really specific about what you're going to achieve. And the reason I like that too is because pretty much every person I've ever spoken to in the world of academia says they're slow at writing, right? So that that's the most common thing I hear. I'm a really slow writer. And when I ask them how they know they're slow, they can't tell me because they've never measured how long it takes them to do anything. They have no idea how long anyone else takes to do anything. And so actually it's just, as you said, a story they've constructed. And so, you know, as a freelance editor, you have to track your time and you have to know when someone gives you a 10,000 word paper to edit, you have to be able to guess, get pretty close to guessing how long it's going to take you so you can charge the appropriate amount. And so I do get a lot of, you know, my academic clients to just start keeping a track. So putting the time in their calendar, say they're going to write every day from nine to 10, setting a specific goal for each session. And then at the end of the session, making a note of what they actually did. So for example, they might say, I'm going to write a paragraph each day. And at the end of each day, they only have only written half a paragraph. Then the next week they know that, okay, more realistically, it's going to take me two hours to write a paragraph. So next week when I set my goals for each day, it'll be half a paragraph. And when you start collecting that data, you can actually then make some um, better estimates of how long it's going to take you to do something. Uh, and it always takes longer than you think, but at least there's something that's measured <laughs> instead of just this feeling that I'm slow. Uh, because it's amazing how I, pretty much everyone says that. Uh, and I think, well, if everyone's saying it, then you can't be slow because everyone's slow and it's just a slow process. Uh. <laughs> got to call people out on the BS, right? And the one thing I can see about what you're sharing in this is just the way it brings accomplishment uh, potentially as a daily uh, routine to someone's life. But it's really easy when you're working on something rather than completing it to not experience accomplishment along the journey. And so then it can create less and less confidence and less and less belief that you'll ever get there because you don't experience accomplishing anything along the way. Whereas if you break it down into this measurable result, you have an experience of I've accomplished something today, even if it is a paragraph, you know, even if yes. it is, you know, I've done my footnoting uh, on this page, whatever it is, that actually alters the way you relate to yourself. Yep. And that's the way I teach. So I, my process is very much super detailed planning and then breaking it down to paragraphs and when I've worked with people who are working on a thesis it's been amazing to see how they suddenly go from feeling completely overwhelmed at this 80,000 word thing they've got to write and I mean it's unfortunate you have to write the biggest usually the biggest um, publication of your career in the first years <laughs> when you're a student uh, but you know the thought of that is so daunting whereas when you can break it down to chapters, to subsections, to paragraphs, and then you can just tick the paragraphs off one by one. It's true, you know, they feel that they've completed something, they feel a sense of accomplishment. Um, and suddenly the goal, you know, it's like climbing a mountain, just looking at one step to the next, it's just breaking it down into small chunks. And yeah, I agree with you. It is just that sense of um, accomplishment and that brings confidence. And it doesn't seem so daunting, um, but it's just you're being really specific. And the, the process I talk about is, you know, making a paragraph plan, which people hate me for when I tell them, but then the ones that do it are grateful because once they've thought about what they're trying to say in the paragraph, writing the paragraph is easy. But the problem is, it's just interesting you were talking about productivity because I think there's a real push these days that productivity equals words on the page. And because I'm old enough to remember life before computers, I'm old enough to remember writing assignments out by hand and you didn't write 15 drafts because you wouldn't have had time you know you really had to do a detailed plan you wrote one draft edited it and then wrote a good copy and I think the problem now is it's easy to just people don't want to think and or they feel pressure to produce something so they think well I'm just going to churn out 
thousands of words and then I'm going to edit it. But as an editor, I can tell you, it's really hard to edit tens of thousands of words, uh, especially for structure. Most of us just look at the screen and start looking at a sentence and fiddling with the, the sentence level or word level. Uh, and so I really try to encourage people to just go back to thinking, what's the story? Who's the audience? What are you trying to get them to do? Um, and then what are you saying in this paragraph? And if you can't tell me, you're not going to be able to write it. <laughs> so, so don't think, you know, and a lot of people just go, oh, I'll just write it. I'll just think it through and write it. And, you know, if you're doing creative writing and writing a novel, you can afford to just, and you're creating something from nothing. Um, you know, sure, you could write, you know, just write whatever comes to your head. But for academic writing, I think it's really important to just be very clear. And again, once you've got that paragraph plan, I just say to people, start with the easiest paragraph. So if you're writing a chapter and there's one section that's super easy in the middle, write that paragraph first because you've got the plan. So you know what's coming before and after it, but you will feel better having finished that. I've met people who have just got stuck with a paper because they couldn't write the introduction and so they haven't done anything on it. They've just sat stuck there for months, uh, whereas if they just started with the easiest parts first, they would have at least had something done and that would have, as you said, fueled their confidence. So, yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah. I think one technique that I found really useful, especially when lacking either confidence or uh, desire, was to, and, and if you stare at a page, which is a blank page or it's a page with only a paragraph or two, it's really easy to just be like, oh, I don't know what to, but my next step is I don't know how to do it or I'm not sure what to say or any of that stuff. Whereas, you know, if you use like an audio transcription tool, um, I use Otter, and you just, First of all, you get out whatever's there. Like you just have like a brain dump on it through audio. And then once you're clear, once you've got everything off your chest that you want to say, you then just start speaking into what it is you want to create. And because you're generating yourself, or at least the way I speak when I'm doing this, is I generate myself, you're no longer in your head about it. And you're just allowing the flow of ideas to come through. Now, you don't necessarily have to use that to be your, you know, the actual text for it, but it creates that, it brings that creativity forth um, such that you're excited to actually go back to, to working. It's like, oh, that's what I was going to say, because it's all there, right? Like if you've done all the research, you've done all of the thinking about it, you're it's all there. You're just getting, you're in the way of it. So it's like, how can I get myself out of the way so that I can bring my natural creativity forth? And for me, this was the way which really helped me break through to actually keep going. Because you know, I, I worked on a PhD on and off for, for 10 years and, you know, for the last four years on and off after having to resubmit it. And to keep going in that process was incredibly challenging. And the last, in this last chunk, there was a year where I didn't do it at all. And I thought I'm going to go back to it. Oh, it'll take me a week, you know? It's only a couple of things I need to sort out. It'll take me a week to get it done. Ridiculous. You know, your brain, the person, you know, hadn't been thinking about that for a year. It needs to find a way to get back into the space of what's this about. So I actually started listening to the old audios where I was inspired from what I was creating to get back into, oh, that's what I was looking at. That's what I was trying to convey. And that helped me actually propel forward to finishing finally. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, it's interesting because that's similar but slightly different to the things I've talked about, but you've just given me an idea listening to that. So I, the two techniques I uh, get people to use is one is to talk about it, like you said, so just get your phone and record yourself or just get a friend and talk to them and record it because most academics I meet are really confident when they talk about their research it's because they don't feel inhibited. They just naturally, it comes out as a story because we're naturally storytellers. So, you know, they'll talk about it in a logical way. They'll talk about it in an easy to understand way <clears throat> most of the time. 
Uh, and so I just say, if you're really stuck, just talk to someone about it and record it and listen back to it. But the other technique I use is free writing, which is sounds like a, the writing version of what you were saying, which is just, you know, typing without thinking and not censoring yourself, just typing for X minutes without stopping and just letting the, the content sort of come out without overthinking it. Because as you say, when you start overanalyzing everything, uh, it stops the creativity and we just go back to whatever fixed ideas we had uh, beforehand. And actually someone on one of my courses said that they do free writing. They um, So one of the things with free writing is you're not supposed to edit, you're just supposed to write. But some people find that really challenging because they can't bear to see a typo or whatever it is. So someone said that they do free writing with the font turned to white so they can't actually see what they're writing and that stops their perfectionist <laughs> tendency taking over. So they're just typing and they can't actually see what they're typing until at the end they when they've stopped they turn the font back to black so they can see what has come out but I thought that was quite a good way to overcome that perfectionism but I think yeah your idea is also good so I might file that away <laughs> to share yeah. with people but yeah. talking it through without yes without the inhibition and um seeing what comes out is a good good thing to do because we do feel more confident talking most people yeah 100%. yeah absolutely so I want to shift slightly now Melanie and I you know I want to look you know Let's be honest, none of us are perfect and we all have challenges that come up for us. So what's one challenge that you're dealing with right now and that you'd love to make some inroads in today? Uh, so, yes, there's lots of challenges. <laughs> and then one of the things I say to um, freelance editors through my podcast as well is that, you know, all the things that I help them with, I'm also facing. So uh, I think it's really important to normalise that. So it's a great question uh, that all of us have our own struggles and it's really easy to look at other people and think, well, it's all right for them. It's all right for them because they're X, Y, Z and I'm not like that. So I'm not going to be able to do any of those things. Uh, so there's lots of challenges, let me think. I think one of the things um, that I struggle with is, so I've made pretty good inroads with marketing. So lots of people know who I am now and that's great. And I've got a podcast, you know, like you and um, I'm pretty good at creating content that resonates with people, but probably one of the things I could do better at is actually uh, getting more people to work with me or um, buy my course or actually just make the leap from consuming my content <laughs> to actually investing in working with me. And um, I think I've just had that realisation this year because I can see my numbers growing in terms of engagement and, and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I try not to get sucked into vanity metrics because it's easy to just focus on, oh, how many people listen to my podcast or how many people have downloaded this or, you know, subscribe to my emails. But in the end, what matters is how many people are actually working with me because that's how I uh, drive my income. And I think that's something I know is a challenge for a lot of people is just like creating content is fun and easy. And the people who do my courses and who work with me do get great results, but somehow I don't think I do a great job of seeing, you know, explaining to people how working with me can help them if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you see is holding you back if anything right now? And what are the thoughts that you're specifically having when you, when it comes to shifting from getting people to consume your content to actually looking to buy it, like buy what you're providing, buy the results and the outcomes that are possible through it? Yeah, I wonder if that's, so what you just said then about the results, I think I know 
Like I've seen the results that people get and I am getting better at sharing testimonials. So that's something I haven't been very good at the social proof thing. Um, that, that's probably a good, another thing to interrogate as to why I haven't done that because I've got plenty of testimonials and nice things people have said and I never shared them. So I have started doing that. So that's been good. Um, but I think like I know people have got results and I guess I could say, if you do this course or work with me, you'll get great results and, you know, all these things could happen. But in the end, I can't control if people will get the results or not, if that makes sense. So, for example, I've got a course. If people buy the course, um, it's a group coaching thing. You know, I know if they do the work, they've got a good chance of having success because other people have done that. But I don't know if they're going to do the work. I just know they could buy the course. And then what happens if they don't do the work and then they don't get the result and I don't want to overpromise things. So I think in the in the spirit of not overpromising, I've probably not promised anything. <laughs> probably gone too far in the other direction. And I wonder if that's um, because, you know, you do see a lot of people who are good at marketing or whatever it is, and they do promise all these amazing things. And I guess there's a skeptical part of me that thinks, well, you know, sure, you're showcasing the, the people that did really well, but how many people, you know, out of all the customers you've had, how many of them have got that result? And so maybe, I'm turning that skepticism on myself, <laughs> not wanting to do, you know, go too far down the road of um, over-promising. I don't know. Does that answer the question? So look at that. You know, let's ask this. How many people who've, who have completed your courses have got the results that they came for? You know, I don't actually know. So that's a good question <laughs> because, well, you know, well, with a lot of these online courses, people sign up for things and then you never actually, they never engage. They never um, come to any of the, the coaching calls. Some of them don't even open the modules. Um, so I actually don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably not helping. But, but, you know, one thing to look at is, you know, if how many people, like what percentage of people are actually getting results when they complete it? Because, what you can control is the product that you deliver. You can't control yep. anything about what they do. You can provide incentives for them to actually show up, right? Like you could provide a, a guarantee which provides them an incentive to show up. Whereas like if you have done all the work, if you have uh, showed up to all the calls and, you haven't, and you've reached out for help at the end because, uh, because you're thinking this isn't working for you and we still can't um, you know, provide you the support you need, then you can get a refund within X number of days or whatever like that. Because then it's the onus is on them to actually show up rather than it being about, oh, like, yeah, this didn't work for me. You know, I'm just going to, you know, send it back, ask for a refund and move to the next thing. Yeah, the refund thing is interesting, actually, because that's another, another thing that I have resisted you know, this whole thing about refunds and I'm sure you've seen it too, you know, where, yeah. especially for on online products. Right. So, um, and I know, and I've read, you know, a lot of, I've consumed a lot of information about this, um, you know, where they say, you, should, you know, if you offer it, if you have a generous refund period, you know, you're addressing the fears people have, which is that it's not going to work for me, but um, you know, I've gotten probably got the fear of what happens if I offer a refund and all these people want their money back? And so my refund policy is quite, <clears throat> you know, you have to do some of the work and show you've done the work and whatever else it is. But yes, that is food for thought that I could be more generous with that. But say, you know, if you, I can meet you halfway, right? I can provide the content, but you have to do the other half, which is actually do the work and um, implement, you know, consume the content and then implement it. Um, and if you do all of that and you're not happy, then... Yeah, actually, that's a good way to think about it. Maybe I should revisit my 
uh, a policy on that because I do know there's a lot of people that hesitate to buy things because they think well it's not going to work for me or what if it doesn't work but I think I have let my fear about that um, stop me from really selling the benefits and I think I will go back and actually that's a good point so thank you I'm going to go in and have a look at my because I can see whether people have at least downloaded the stuff you know so I can see um, of those people how many have actually finished working through the modules and probably if I look at that subset then it would be quite a significant percentage who have got benefits from it because they, you know, they tell me. Advertise that, right? Like if it's a percentage that you're, you're happy with, you could even be like X percentage of people who've completed uh, this course have got, you know, these results mm. um, so that you can be it's tangible. It's a specific measurable result. <laughs> yes. And I do like that. You know, I do like facts like that. And I think that helps me too, because as we talked about earlier, like you need something and this is, you know, this is why it's so funny when you're a coach, when you're coached, it's all the same issues, right? <laughs> same things as, you know, all of our clients say these things and it's easier to coach them when it's them, but when it's you, it's really hard to see uh, your own issues. And, you know, we find ourselves saying the same things our clients say to us. <laughs> so, so, um, because yeah, you're right. It's easier to just have this idea that should just look at the negative, right? It's easy for me to just focus on the people who didn't finish it and instead of focusing. People that need your help, right? Like look at all the editors and academics who are questioning, you know, editors questioning whether or not they can ever make an income uh, from this. And you know that you can help them. So if you know that you can help them and you're holding back on actually providing them an opportunity by not selling to them, then you're saying that you want to help this group of people but you're only going halfway in to actually doing yep. it. Yeah. And I have, I am better with that than I was. And I think when I first started, just the idea of selling was still <clears throat> like it is for a lot of people. It was just like, Oh, asking for money. And, um, you know, so I know I've improved with that part of it, but I, I agree that um, I think as more people work their way through my course and get success, it does give me more confidence to say, yes, I can help people. And um, you're right. If I don't tell them about it, I can't help them. So it's denying them an opportunity to, to get the results. Mm. Absolutely. And the other thing I can see is potentially like there could be a lot more people who want to work with you when you actually, you know, put the onus on them. You know, you, you are like, I'm confident in what I'm providing, you know, and this is the guarantee I'm providing. And if you show up, this is the results I'm confident you'll get. And if for some reason this doesn't, then, you know, let's have a conversation once you've shown you've done the work. And then if you're still not satisfied, then, you know, <laughs> here you go. But rather than worried about the one or two people who might not do the work, you think about all the people you're attracted to who might not have made a decision in the first place because they were scared it wasn't going to work for them. And it's about them, not about you, uh, which stops them from making the decision. I like what you're saying about if you've done the work and it still hasn't worked for you, let's have a conversation. Cause I think that putting that bit in, cause often you see people saying, you know, with a refund, you can just no questions, ask refund, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I feel, you know, like I've still got my fears and issues with that, but I like the idea of, of having the conversation with them rather than just saying, show me all your work. And then if you've done all the work, you'll get a refund, but actually just having, because it could just be that the conversation is what they need to oh, just make thing. that, if they've done the work and they still haven't got a result, there's something, obviously something else going on. Well, so, yeah, as, right. Yes. And it shows that I'm 
genuine and wanting to help them actually, you know, that's because the whole point of doing this is to help them get a result. I mean, it's not, if it was just about making money and selling stuff, then I you know, wouldn't care exactly. if they did it or not, but I do care. I want them to do the work. 100%, right? Like this kind of way offers you the opportunity to show up in the way which is most consistent with what your business is about in the first place. Yep. Yeah, no, that's good. Thanks. Yeah, it's always good getting coached. Oh, see, this is the this is the power of coaching and just helping, you know, and also I think just talking it aloud, right? Just saying these things out loud to someone else really helps you focus on what is the problem. Because when it's in your head, you just it's not it's not always clear. Um so yeah, no, thanks. That's good. And you yep. know, and now that you're confident about what you're providing, I want people to know like how can they, you know, what what kind of results could they expect and where can they go to find you? Oh, you want me to tell you now? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to know about where to find me. Yeah. So for editors, you know, I have a group coaching program, which is called Boost Your Editing Income. So if you go to editboost.com and go to eCourse, you can find it there. So it is, um, you know, it helps editors look at money, messaging and marketing and the mindset issues that underpin all of those things. Because like I say on the sales page, you know, you don't need more people telling you what to do. <laughs> you need to actually work out. Um, your own way forward, looking at your mindset and what stopped you from doing that. So that's um, that was the thing I was thinking about when we were talking about that. But for academics, I have a monthly membership, uh, which is uh, academicwriting.community, and that's a place to become more confident and, you know, just be part of a community. That's what I think a lot of people are missing, especially with COVID, you know, that just feeling connected to other people in the same boat, all supporting each other and, you um, started to create a habit of writing regularly and feeling more confident about it. So that's my plug. <laughs> you know, like if you're an editor and you're looking to boost your income, then you now know where to go. If you're an academic who's looking to have more confidence and to have a community around you so you don't feel so isolated, which is often a thing in academia, then you also know where to go. So I really want to thank you, Melanie, for having you on. It's been such a treat. You know, it's the first time I've done anything with family before. And it's, it's been really wonderful following your journey over the last few years and seeing, you know, everything that you're, you're creating. Oh, well, thanks, Sam. It's been a pleasure for me to come on the show. Same for me. First time, first time being a podcast guest, actually, I must say. <laughs> Usually I'm the person uh, running the interview. But, um, you know, I'm so pleased that the thesis is um, finished. And uh, also it's just been nice to see another person in my family going into coaching. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed also seeing all your posts and, um, you know, seeing how you've helped other people to um, make transformations and change their relationships and with themselves and with other people, you know, it's really empowering to see that. So thanks again for having me. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Look forward to catching up again soon. Yep. See ya. Whether you're a relative veteran of this podcast or a new listener, I really thank you for taking the time to listen. And if you've got value from this podcast, then it would mean the world to me if you rate and review it on Apple or Podchaser and share it with your community so that this work can impact more people. Because I'm on a mission to help people live a life free from constraints. And if you're ready to take this from information to transformation, then connect with us at thephilosophicalcoach.com.